Hi, Eric. Hey, Aaron. How's it going? It's going pretty good. Yeah. Um, so you're a scientist. Yes, I am. I heard some science news. Uh-huh. You may you may have already heard this. It's made it to NPR, so it might be old news in the science world. But I heard this morning about um, some brain cells in a dish uh-huh. that have learned how to pay, play Pong. Oh, you know what? I have heard a little bit mm-hmm. about this. Yeah. So uh, apparently they're human brain cells, I should say. Uh-huh. And human brain cells, incidentally, are better at playing Pong than... Mouse brain cells? Oh, no way. <laughs> yeah. It's fewer brain cells than, than a cockroach has in, uh-huh. in its actual brain. So it's not a lot of brain cells. And they train it by um, apparently brain cells like predictable electronic stimulus and not random electronic stimulus. So okay. by rewarding them with predictable stimulus, when they move the paddle, they're able to teach it how to play Pong. Oh, this is fantastic. Uh-huh. Yeah. So uh, how many steps from there? I mean, the, where they wanted to go in the story was like, how close is this to including living tissue in our machines, right? Yeah. Computers that can uh, think using organic capabilities. Well, I've mentioned in the past the uh, hard problem of consciousness. Did, yeah. did I mention that? Yeah, yeah. We have talked about We've that. We've talked about that, right? Yeah. Um, I, I still think it's a fascinating problem. You know, the whole science of like, connecting neurons together is what all this machine learning is about too right yeah it's similar yeah it's very it's very similar um yeah that's a really cool experiment um did the article that you read was it the paper itself or was it? Uh, no i just heard this on npr on npr i have and not read the, there any, i've not hunted it down any fear mongering like no no not at all okay yeah because I could immediately see like oh frankenstein oh i'm sure i'm sure some people will uh <laughs> that will happen i I doubt not that we could find those articles today if we were to start looking for them. Okay. Um, but yeah, it's exciting. Like, things are things are happening. Um, so those brain cells, they're technically alive. Uh-huh. Um, but I think we could all agree they're not a person. I think we could. But, you know, could it progress to being a person someday? Uh, no, I, d- I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think... I don't think so, and I don't think it's close. Um, but... There's so much between here and there, right? Sure. Um, between consciousness and a few cells in a dish that it's hard to even know how to even get started with it. And then, of course, even if you had it, right, the whole question of um, where it would it have a soul is another, another yes. interesting question. This is very good for Halloween, by the way. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> the brain that wouldn't die. Um, and, and, it, and it allows me to make my sort of absurd question uh, do you feel this is the cells in a dish playing pong which may i remind you was really cool about 50 years ago yeah. playing pong yeah um metaphorically speaking what do you think of the distance between the brain cells in a dish to us versus us to god oh yeah i like this analogy this is i i didn't see where you're going with this um you said it was a sideways intro and I was wanting to just go along. <laughs> um, I saw the door and I opened it. <laughs> um, yeah, I, that's a, such a good question. Um, God really is fundamentally different from us. I in, suspect. In many ways, yeah. right? But in ways that are hard to understand, which um, I guess that's what we're talking about today. That is some of what we're talking about today, yes. Okay. I want to try to answer the question before we just dive in. Um I want to. I know it's kind of a, a philosophical or even sure. facetious, but quite possibly fatuous. Uh, yeah, all those things maybe. <laughs> Question, right? <laughs> and, but also, also mildly sincere. But um, measuring complexity is something that we like to do in the sciences, right? There's this whole notion of order algorithms, right? Yeah. An algorithm can be order one or order n or order n squared. And this refers to if you have a data set, how many times do you have to go over that data set to come to an answer, right? Oh, interesting. The ex- classic example is the traveling salesman problem, right? Oh, I just used that as an example with my sophomores earlier this week. There you Talking go. Unsolvable problems. There you go. So measuring complexity is something that um, we do have the means of doing so. And measuring the difference in complexity from us to a pile of Petri dishes, you could argue, is just by counting up the neurons and counting up the connections. And if you do that, you get to a number that is so staggeringly large. Yeah, really quickly. Uh, it's very quickly. Then, and, but, and, of course, the problem with that is that it doesn't actually infer... It doesn't teach you all the complexity that's still there under the hood, 
right? Yeah. Um, people oftentimes think of a brain with a neuron as a binary thing, right? The neuron fires or it doesn't. But with inside the neuron, there's all these gradients that build up until it fires, right? Yeah. And there's chemistry and there's, you know, there's signaling and there's information that's happening even beyond that. Um, that even if you could just directly model a brain, right? I mean, would you even get anything close to what a neuron actually does? I don't know. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> and so the difference between that and God, I, who actually, I, I, I actually don't know. Because the question is, is God progressing, right? Or rather, maybe I should say it differently. The question is, did God progress in the same way that we are, right? Yes. And, but it also suggests the question that, the brain cell progression, which you said they can't progress into us. Um, that you suggest dish, there might be that uh-huh. dish won't evolve, won't cha- won't evolve to us. Yeah, but f- mainly for dumb reasons. <laughs> um, there's no stimulus. It's in a petri dish. It's in a lab. Yeah, <laughs> those, those are reasonable reasons. <laughs> and we've rejected the stim- uh, that this is a simulation. We've already rejected that. <laughs> Listen to another episode if that's what you want. <laughs> well, today we're talking about um, more. Uh, questions from the BYU Studies article that we brought up in our season premiere about questions about the nature of God and about us, about whether God progresses, whether he doesn't, mm-hmm. and what is the nature of that, and whether we can progress like in between kingdoms in the afterlife. And it's a very broad top- topic. Yes. But first, but first, we're proud to announce we have our first sponsor. <laughs> we can't, I can't believe it. We've made it. <laughs> Eric, we're ready to we're ready to go. Um, we'd like to invite you to read the book Beyond the Witch's Woods, Book One of the Kingdom of Adair by my good friend Nathan Calder. Uh, he's sponsoring this episode. Um, he said he was really excited to be our first sponsor, and we're happy to do so. I'm going to put a link to this Amazon um, page where you can buy it. Uh, he is. I have my copy arrives tomorrow. I'm excited to read it, um, and it's a. Um, a fantasy epic, and there's a description here at the bottom, Eric. Why don't you uh, read it for us? Oh, okay. Beyond the Witch's Woods is a debut novel of mystery fantasy fiction for adults and some intrepid kids, probably. It would appeal to readers who enjoy the post-apocalyptic epic fantasy genre without the traditional elements of a missing heir, magical weapons, nor enchanted items, but with a focus on mystery and detective work instead, and a meddling witch, obviously. All right. Yeah, if this interests you, check it out on Amazon, and thanks, Nate, for supporting the show. Yeah, I look forward to hearing your feelings about the book after you read it. Okay. The links to the articles in question today are in the show notes. Show notes. So take a look and you can follow along. There's two chapters. The first chapter that we're going to... Well, I'm not sure what order we're going to do them in, but the, the actual we'll probably bounce names, back and forth. Yeah. The one is um, What is the Nature of God's Progress by Matthew Bowman. And the other is How Limited is Post-Mortal Progression by Terrell Gibbons. And... They both, yeah, they both handle this topic of progression, like in general, right? Yes. Um, and it raises a couple things I had. Oh, oh, I should say. And this is the good stuff, okay? <laughs> Among the kinds of fun things that we could talk about at, as random LDS theology, right? This is, just, this is just right up there. This is the stuff that gets me excited about being a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Right? Yeah. The interesting philosophy and the interesting... I mean, I shouldn't say it quite like that, of course. Um, I, I, <laughs> I've, well, let I have me, good testimonies. Let me put it this way, because this isn't where I was planning on starting, but yeah. um, it made me excited about the concept of restoration again, yeah. uh, which, you know, it, there's a low level of excitement for that at all times. But um, in Terrell Gibbons' article, he starts by talking about how a lot of the ideas that Latter-day Saints have of progression... You know, we live somewhere where we were before we were born. This is stage two. We move on. There may be progression afterwards. We'll talk about it. But this is not original to Joseph Smith. I was excited to see that a lot of the ancient church fathers, and at least one mother from the first 200 years of Christianity, uh, were on the Latter-day Saint side here. Um, and Givens quoted the, the, quote, great historian Walter Bauer who said apparently that heresy is merely the orthodoxy that lost out, which I kind of loved. Because um, there is an alternate universe where uh, 
instead of the he talks later in the article about how there were two main philosophies there was the binary philosophy where you die and there's heaven and hell and then there's, there was the eternal progression philosophy and that one lost ultimately until you know the restoration uh but imagine the world where that had been the christianity there there's a, another quote on that from one of these earlier fathers this is the condemnation of origin a church father of the third century who ensured the supremacy in the christian tradition of a theology whose central concerns were human sinfulness and not human potentiality divine determination and not human freedom and responsibility so in other words um this person origin is condemning the early and this was in the third century yeah. the early christian philosophies the early christian philosophies about um what like what is your central concern was it the sinfulness of humanity mm -hmm. right or was it the potential of humanity right so right. is it the are you are divinely determined to do something or do you have hum freedom and responsibility right so they this was this was great for me to learn that in the third century as you were saying they were talking about this stuff yeah right it was a legitimate option for Christianity. Yeah, and there's a whole list of people, like you said, that was that were all, that that were all doing this, right? Until it became heresy. Until it became heresy. This I want to quote our author here directly, um, Terrell Givens. He said, "By the advent of the Church of Jesus Christ in the 19th century, a plan of salvation that encompassed the entirety of humanity was barely a dim memory of the Christian past, except for a few small circles of a burgeoning movement." called universalism i think it's fascinating um and sort of one of the overall threads of our entire podcast from the beginning yeah is the idea that there is uh, knowledge to be uncovered and there are mysteries to be unsolved but those things aren't really in conflict with each other and i find this a fascinating example of how this idea that was commonplace in early christianity and then was lost um is part of what joseph smith has restored for us but it, we haven't finished the restoration. One of the things I found really striking about Gibbon's article, um, in fact, let me read his final paragraph. Well, let's summarize. Okay. The, the, the thesis is that you can progress between kingdoms. Or you can't. Or you can't. The, one of the two. One of the two, <laughs> right? Which narrows it down nicely. <laughs> <laughs> and by kingdoms, we mean the terrestrial, the, sorry, yeah. the celestial, the terrestrial, and the celestial the kingdoms. The heavens we believe in. Yeah, that occur after final judgment, which the article makes a point of saying... More than once. Yeah, more than once, that the phrase final judgment is not in the scriptures. Yes. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. So the final paragraph reads this way. What we can know is that the church leadership decided not just once, as cited at the beginning of this essay, but again in 1965 and yet again in 1968, to declare that the question, is there eternal progression, like is there progression between kingdoms or not? That question is officially open. Faithful Latter-day Saints can believe in the possibility of progression for all or believe that the door is shut once assignment to a kingdom is made. We cannot, however, proclaim with any validity that one or the other belief is official church teaching. And the thing that struck me is, with all the examples of, like, J. Reuben Clark disagreeing with Talmadge, uh, who, you know, and, or just all these different famous names, right? Like, B.H. Roberts did not agree with uh, Bruce R. McConkie. It, it raises an interesting question, and uh, maybe, this, maybe this is a heretical question, but it sort of raises the question, like, in what way, with these specific questions, this is what the whole BYU Studies issue is about, right? The restoration is not finished if we believe that the restoration means all knowledge has been revealed. But it does seem, at least on this question, a little stalled out. Like, it feels like we're still arguing over what Joseph Smith meant rather than receiving new information. It's more of a, almost a historical theological question rather than one for which we seem to anticipate much new information. Which is interesting because, to me, this feels like a big question and a meaningful question, but it's also a question for the future, like after we're dead, and so maybe it's not an urgent question. You know, this thought about how um, it stalled out is really interesting. In the other article, the Matthew Bowman article, What is the Nature of God's Process? The conclusion of the article is very similar. And he says, the increased comfort with ambiguity about the precise nature of God's progress led to renewed emphasis on a practical relationship with God. Right? Yeah. In other words, that um, people became 
more comfortable with not knowing the answer, right? Yeah, whether God can, what, what God's progress means. Does it mean he's still growing in knowledge and understanding, or is he just growing in more, more, more? We haven't solved that question, and we seem to have stopped arguing about it. Yeah. And, and I, I'm interested in his argument that perhaps that greater comfort with uncertainty allows us to focus more on a practical relationship with God rather than uh, worried about those details. Well, I think we got to be careful, right? And the way that you just phrased that statement, right, you were almost assigning an argument to the author, right? And almost. Almost. Yeah. But not quite. My point is that it's hard when I read these articles, and I think the other articles are very carefully written this way on purpose, Mm-hmm. to know which side the authors favor. <laughs> yeah. It is good that I think that they avoid putting their finger on the scale. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. And I actually think that's really cool. However, <laughs> having said that, <laughs> in the, in this, the nature of God's progress, whether or not uh, Matthew Bowman intended this, I don't know. But it seems to me that the preponderance of evidence that he showed leaned in one direction to me at least to me (laughs) yeah um i'm curious if you felt the same way it seems like if we're by evidence we mean the number of people felt this way and which time periods and how many time periods it feels like was sort of an exception for mid-century um conservatism conservatism yeah Yeah, i didn't want to say that word but Mm -hmm. that's the right word no but he does Oh, does he? Okay. Um, but with the exception of like people like Joseph Fielding Smith and, and Bruce R. McConkie, who should who you know his seven deadly heresies show up in both these articles. Yes, that's right. They, he sure does. Um, but with the exception of that like small cluster of people who still have a lot of influence today, to be clear. Yeah. Uh, but it does feel that I agree. The evidence seems to be on one side, and it's not their side. Yeah. And um, so we're gonna we're gonna talk about that. Um, and I should also say that I myself personally am not totally convinced one way or the other either. Yes, I, I almost feel like it's a question, it's kind of a dumb question for us to ask because it's impossible to understand what we're asking. Yeah. And in fact, let's go ahead and just quote um, President Hinckley first. <laughs> yes, it was a cop-out, but I felt like it was honest. Yeah. He said that, oh, sorry. Um, so a reporter from the San Francisco Chronicle asked him while I was on my mission, and I didn't even know the circle existed. Uh, he asked Gordon B. Hinckley if he believed that God was once a man. Hinckley said, quote, that gets into some pretty deep theology that we don't know much about, unquote. Right. So say the year again? 1997. 1997. Around the time of the 60 Minutes interview. Yeah. The, um, if you don't know, the 60 Minutes interview, if you've never seen it, of President Hinckley is famous. Yes. In our it was church. a big deal. It was a big deal. It was one of these normalization moments right where the world got to see mormons as mm-hmm. people and um i still love president hinckley <laughs> so and i much. saw that scene enough times on my because my parents sent me a vhs tape of it and ah. saw it many times <laughs> and there's a couple like do you have anything that um you quote even though nobody else will know what the quotation is from oh yeah like roger roger nobody mm-hmm. nobody i say it oh, all the time roger roger yeah. Uh, from not from Star Wars then. It is Star Wars. Oh, it is Star Wars. Okay. Yes, yeah, so maybe everybody knows. But there's one from there's one from this interview where um, uh, Michael Wallace is that his name? Mike Wallace. That's Mike right, Wall- right. Yeah, Mike Wallace. Um, he says, "What do you say to people who say this is a gerontocracy, a church run by old men?" Yeah. And President says, "Isn't it wonderful?" <laughs> <laughs> I remember that really well. And uh, I don't. I don't. I don't know if I agree with him. I. I. I think that his point was a good one, but I do think it's a question that. Yeah. It's worth asking. And his point is that we're nice guys. Yeah. <laughs> to have, well, his point was that isn't it good to have someone uh, with a lot of experience, with a lot of experience, hand yeah. on the wheel, like who won't be bandied about by every wave of like, uh-huh. which I think is a, a good point, um, though debatable, and maybe some episode in a future season. Uh, but here's here's um here's a question for you. Like, like I said, I think it's very honest. That gets into some pretty deep theology that we don't know much about. Um, but I want to go back to my claim that maybe it's a cop out. Is it his job as, you know, prophet and president, yeah. um, seer and revelator, to find out answers to questions like that? Um, and it doesn't mean God will give him the answer, of course, and it doesn't mean he wasn't asking. But rhetorically, I think it's an interesting stance for um, a proclaimed prophet to take that uh, I think I think it's good for prophets to say they don't know. To be clear, like I think I think that's a really important skill for a prophet to have. 
but I do think it's a reasonable question an outsider could ask us. Um, what is the point of profit if he's not going to answer these questions? Especially because it seems like they did like declaratively say it a few times. Yes, in the past, and sometimes um, disagreeing with each other. Yeah, you, you could sort of, even though it wasn't the point of this article, you could see that tension between Brigham Young and Orson Pratt in this article. Yeah, and Orson Pratt's idea on this was like wild. I've never heard this before. I hadn't either. Let's go there. Okay, well, let's first let's pose the question, right? This is Matthew Bauman's um, article, and the idea is there's two questions, right? Has God always been divine? Has God always been divine? Yes. Right? Or did he, and I'm quoting the article, pass through a humanity much like ours along the way? Yes. Okay? In other words, you know, as man is, God once was. That sort of thing. Right? Mm -hmm. So, or... Has he always been divine? And then the other question, right, is now that he is God, and however long that he has been God, either forever, <laughs> right, right, or became God, mm -hmm. right, is he progressing? And if he is progressing, how? Is it either qualitative or quantitative? So yeah, qualitative means learning knowledge, right? Right. He's developing still in some way, like right. becoming more God than he was yesterday. Right. Quantitative means, as you said before, just more universes in his back pocket. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so I have fair, I have pretty seriously believed for most of my life that it was the latter, right? That I, my, because I grew up in a, and where, however else, whoever taught me this, mm -hmm. right, was pretty, they were pretty sure that, um, I don't remember if it was Sunday school that I learned this, that they were pretty sure that it was God does not progress qualitatively, but does progress quantitatively, right? Oh, okay. Yes. Uh, I didn't hear that until later. Okay. I heard that when I was growing up. Qualitative is what I was first aware of. I don't know what I heard, but yeah. I was first aware of this idea of uh, qualitative progression. And quantitative as a more correct answer, I don't think I heard that maybe until I was in college. Okay. And by that we mean, again, that God has finished, right? Right. And here quoting um, Neil Maxwell, okay? Mortals should not aspire to teach God that he is not omniscient by adding qualifiers that he has never used in the scriptures. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> right? And I think that there is a very severe reaction to saying that God is still progressing in a qualitative manner, yeah. right? Because it does seem to go away against so many scriptures about, like, how McConkie paraphrases scriptures that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Yeah, and I, I will say that although um, I think largely because it was what I learned first and because it seems to fit in better with the rest of our theology as I understand it, I'm on team qualitative progress, um, if I had to choose a side, that's yeah. the side I would choose. Yeah. Um, and I will say it results in much better fiction and poetry. Um, well, but specifically in Stephen Peck's new novel, Heike's Void, which came out earlier this year. Yeah. Um, I would, I was still startled when, uh, we meet a character who is a goddess who is like, um, one of the daughters of Ishmael and now she's a goddess. Mm. And, um, and she's sort of a goddess in train. Like she's a goddess. She's not an angel. Like, yeah. there's a difference between her. Like, Nephi is an angel and she is a goddess. Yeah. And, um... This and is a work of fiction. This is a work of fiction, to, to be clear. clear. <laughs> this is a work of fiction. Stephen Peck's Heike's Void. It's an excellent book. I highly recommend it. But, um... But it was startling to me. Like, because although I... In my... I think, in my core, I accept the idea of qualitative. To see, like, a god who is not as god as god... Yeah. Was a little disorienting. Well, let's be clear. We... Even the people that that would argue in favor uh, in favor of an unchangeable God, yes, would argue that we take time to get to that point ourselves. Yes, right. But that there is a essentially what they're arguing is that there's a termination to improvement. Right. There's a point that you can reach. Some of them are. Some of them are saying um, God was always this way. Yeah. He, he did not become this. Which raises the question, if we become like God, then, but God did not become God, then 
how are we the same as God? Yeah, we have to. We, we should make a make clear one of our assumptions. One of our underlying assumptions yes. to this conversation is the second half of that statement that we said before: "As God is, man once was; yeah. as God is, man can become." Yes. Okay. So it is this tacit admission that we believe in this word that I hadn't read before of divin. Divinization? Divin, divinization. Yeah, that was a fun one. That was a good one. Right? I had to look at that one twice. <laughs> Almost as good as salvific yeah. from last time. Right? Divin, di, okay, I still this, can't do it. Divinization. This season's going to be good for our vocabularies. <laughs> it's so scholarly. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, but that's my point. That I think that is buried in this conversation, yeah. right? So if you believe in this eternal progression of us... yeah. Right, which isn't even being, I think, argued in either of these articles. Yeah. I think they're also tacitly, or maybe even explicitly, saying that that's the case. Okay, then that would mean that at some point there's a terminus, right, where you have right. now reached perfection, essentially. Um, if perfection is equivalent in in oh, but but let me finish. Okay, but once you reach there, that doesn't mean that you're sad because there's nothing to grow, right? right. Which is one of the like theses of so many pieces of media mm -hmm. including the good place right right yeah but once you reach that there's nowhere i mean spoilers for the good place i suppose <laughs> <laughs> but once you reach there there's nothing else to do but that you are increasing relationships and your family is growing and there's still love and happiness abounding right yeah and that that there's an eternal thing there right mm -hmm. uh it, so perfection uh is defined sometimes as wholeness or completeness yeah um and uh, when it comes to God, uh, do you think that there is some integer, like if we could qualify, if we could measure the nature of godliness on a linear scale, is there some integer at which godness is achieved? Yeah. Or is it like infinite? Okay, so this the only answer has to be that it's infinite, okay? That seems right to me. That, that We look in the scriptures and we read about an infinite atonement. Mm -hmm. So the concept of infinity is well-baked into the Book of Mormon, right? Yeah. And the idea of an infinitely powerful... That's what omniscience and omnipotence really mean. That's, yeah, all. Okay. Omni means all. But, um... But put it's it, all completeness? Is It's not an... Like, I agree with you, but so it's not like an integer. There's not some entirety of knowledge to be known yeah it's at some point it becomes infinite but let's put a pin in that because i'm gonna i want to come back to that idea later okay okay so in the meantime okay. we're, we're gonna go we're gonna try to follow one of the diversions back to its root right we and because we wanted to talk about pratt yes okay? right yes we we're gonna i still have it open in front of me okay but before you do let's just note some of the arguments for and against um progression okay, okay? And there are some lecture. I, there's some evidence in the lectures of faith, faith. There's McConkie's quote that I just said, right? There's some in in favor. There's some other points in the lectures of faith. King Follett's discourse talks about progression from man to God. Um, there's something called the Sermon in the Grove um, mm -hmm. from uh, Joseph Smith, I believe, and he said yes. that God may have a father. And then apostles, which is bananas. I mean, mm -hmm. no, I, it's just out, outstanding. That's the only thing that makes sense, but it, it just throws then it's a whole different question. Right. Directions. Yeah. Um, and, and then Apostles Talmadge, James Talmadge, John Woodso, and B.H. Roberts, they talked about effort and education, right? Yes. One of the things I found fascinating, and this showed up in both articles, was there have been apostles who reject the idea of being static. Yeah. Like there's no such thing as staying in place. Um which presents the possibility of not just eternal progression, but you could choose to go backwards and um, in yeah the regression. And uh, Brigham Young said, "All organized existence is either in progress, either to an endless advancement in eternal perfections, or back to dissolution." Yeah, which is um, scary, startling. I mean, yeah, it's <laughs> like. A... And there's another quote from Brigham Young about um, the ter the terrestrial kingdom. And how he believed that some people would progress and some to the celestial kingdom and some would regress yeah. to the celestial kingdom, right? Which is, I never... I'd never heard that. I'd quote. always assumed it was like, um, uh, you know, like the emergency theme on a roller coaster where <laughs> uh, if it stops moving, it, it like stops. It doesn't, it doesn't, it, it either continues forward, it can't go backwards, it like it stopped. That's how I thought eternal progression was like. I don't know if calling it a roller coaster is sufficiently reverent, but... 
That was the first mentor that popped to mind. All right, should we talk about Pratt? Yeah, let's talk about Pratt. Um, the Brigham Young quote, by the way, is in the um, Terrell Givens article. And it says, those of terrestrial glory either advance to the celestial or recede to the terrestrial. Okay, Pratt tried to reconcile these two ideas. Yes, he wanted them both to be true. Right? And again, just restate the two ideas. Some innovative theology here. Uh-huh. That, um, that God um, progresses but doesn't progress. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and that's the great God. The great God. Oh, who's Parley P. Pratt? Uh, no, this is not Parley. This is his brother Orson. Oh, who's Orson Pratt? Orson Pratt's an apostle. Um, he briefly... Uh, was an apostle. Yes, he's dead. Uh-huh. Is apostle like I think that's a I think that is a priesthood office you carry with you. Into oh, the, you're probably right. Yeah, yeah, I think so. But the point is, this was in the 1800s. Yes, a long time ago. He's a contemporary with Brigham Young, and as I mentioned, they did not get along. When uh, Brigham Young became the prophet, one of the first things he did was reorganize the uh, seniority, and he it, basically anybody who was ever had a moment that where they uh, were not totally loyal. Like, he kicked him out and then let him back in, lower down. Which, if he hadn't done that, Orson Pratt would have been the third third president of the church. Interesting. And Orson Pratt, um, very different guy from John Taylor. It'd be probably a different church in significant ways. Um, anyway, interesting guy, had a great beard. <laughs> um, from the Keen Follett discourse, I'm now quoting Bowman's article, Pratt posited that, and I'm quoting Pratt, the primary powers of all material substance must be intelligent, back to Bowman, and that therefore the totality of that intelligence, which was interconnected, self-evident, and eternal, was in fact what Pratt called the great God. So the idea is we call someone God, right? And that God partakes of the great God's divine attributes that um, are eternal. And thus, a god, I don't I've got to be honest, like, I... Or it's just start swimming, doesn't it's it? Like, it's, so, it's so hard to, like, hold on to. <laughs> um, so, it, to simplify it greatly, possibly to the point of not saying what Pratt's saying anymore, essentially, there are gods, um, and our god is one, and he started out like us, and he progressed, but he is also eternal because he's drawing on this great god which is eternal and never-ending and never-changing that all God's drawn. Uh-huh. I think that's what he's saying. <laughs> and and, this, this is, and it's, it's awesome. I'm glad that somebody wrote idea. this down. And it influenced lots of people down the line, but you ain't going to find it in no Sunday school manual nowadays. No, I, I, <laughs> I suspect... Uh, yeah. I mean, it's, please, please forgive me. Um, our, I know we have one Catholic listener. It... it <laughs> <laughs> it kind of sounds Catholic to me. Can you explain that? Um, you know, the, that God is, um, you know, permeates the universe and is part of everything, right? Mm-hmm. So we believe that God is a person that has a body, right? Yes. Boy, I hope I'm not screwing this up. All right. <laughs> but but I, I, I don't even want to say the phrase. A Catholic would believe because <laughs> uh, I could be totally, I mean, I know I'm sure there's a diversity of beliefs. Sure. Right? But this idea of a, a of a great God that kind of permeates the universe, it feels. Um, I can see that. Um, there was somewhere in the first article where uh, one of Joseph Smith's early ideas and this was that um, a more, I think, again, <laughs> could be wrong. I think a more Catholic idea that the Father is Spirit the Son's body and the Holy Ghost is like their shared mind, kind of. Oh, interesting. Um, let, let me let me quote it. So this is from the original Lectures of Faith, which Joseph Smith did not write, but he approved. Uh, so the Lectures on Faith declared that the Godhead consists of a Father, a personage of Spirit, and the Son, a personage of Tabernacle, and these two possess the same mind. That's the Holy Spirit. That is not really what we teach anymore. That's correct. Um, and the lectures also taught that God, quote, changes not, neither is there variableness with him, but that he is the same from everlasting to everlasting. Um, um, I mean, to be honest, if I squint, I can see what we currently now teach in the words from that lecture of faith. Well, you have to squint. I think I do have to squint. But sure. <laughs> I mean, you could argue, for instance, that um, their roles in this world, is sun, the sun is the physical presence on our planet. Yeah. Um, he is the God who has physicality and uh, the father is not here. Therefore 
could be a person just spirit, I guess. Yeah, but that's not what we believe. That particular <laughs> yeah. is is definitely something that's... Um, We've definitely moved past that. Yeah. Um, okay, so that's Pratt. Um, and yeah, it goes into some pretty deep... And that leads right into Hinckley in the article. That's the deep theology. We just don't know about it, right? Yes. But... To, okay, I can tell you what I want to believe. Okay. Okay? I want to believe that God was a person... Mm-hmm. like me and progress to be a god and that still has room to grow because i find growth exciting same right i don't want god to be static which is one of the as we said before one of the words used to describe used to describe him by opponents of, a, of this idea that if you believed that he wasn't changing mm-hmm. that he must necessarily be static Right. That's just me. It just that's just what I what, I don't get to choose yeah. what's true. <laughs> Let's be clear. All right. And likewise, I want to believe in universalism. Right. Mm-hmm. I want to believe that people can move between kingdoms, even though McConkie said that was one of the heres- seven deadly heresies. Um, I wonder if you mean it. Who? By which I mean. Go ahead. Um, challenge. Yeah. So there's, <laughs> there's a flag on the floor on the play. <laughs> uh, I'm just going to throw a hypothetical at you. I'm, this is not original to me. I'm stealing this from the play called the plan by Eric Samuelson. Okay. Huh? Let's do a little bit of reader seaters. Just a, it's a two hander. So, um, just two characters. Okay. I'm going to read who would you rather be Lucifer or Gaia, which is the pre-mortal name of Eve? I, I feel like you're putting me on the spot. No, no, I'm, you, it's, it's a tough choice. Yeah. Um, I'll go with Lucifer. Okay. All right. So let me. So in the plan, uh, which is I haven't read the whole thing. I'm embarrassed. I, I, Wait, I what is this thing again? The plan. This, this is, is a book. So, yes. Yeah, so this is a play called a Plan, plan by uh, Eric Samuelson, okay. who I I think that if you were to to do a survey of Mormon literature people, there's an excellent chance that he would come out on top as like our most important playwright. Okay. And this particular one uh, largely takes place in. The preexistence. The conversation we're going to read is between Lucifer and Gaia, which is the name he gave premortal Eve. Like Adam is Michael, Eve is Gaia. Sure. So they're out creating stuff in the ocean, and Lucifer uh, is big into sharks. He likes killing machines. Excellent. And that's what they were talking about before. And Lucifer has reached. He hasn't technically been thrown out or apostatized or whatever you want to call it yet, but he. He still. He's. He's not happy. Uh-huh. He's not happy. And we're going to pick up where uh, Lucifer says, are you going to tell me to stop talking to people? Thank you for volunteering to be Lucifer, Aaron. Okay. And I'll be Gaia. <laughs> Quoth Lucifer. Are you going to tell me to stop talking to people? I'll be talking to them afterwards. Then do me a favor. Tell him something for me. Tell him I know. What do you know? What his was like. His probation. I've seen it. It's not possible. Hey, you said I was bright. Show me. You sure? Show me. He was nothing special. I figured you know... He was probably a king, or an artist, or someone really important, but no, see for yourself. He's 20. Mother was 16. They have two children. They sleep on some straw, on a dirt floor. They eat with wooden forks. They're no one. They have nothing. That's father. There he is. This is as old as he ever got. He married at 17, normal in that day. These guys came by. They had some dispute with his master. They took it out on his slaves. There. He fought back as best he could, but you can see it was over pretty quickly. Why would you show me this? To show you how hypocritical this all is. Look at him. He did nothing. He was nobody. Someone to be slaughtered. He loved her. Look how he fought for her. Yes, he loved, but look at him. Worked half to death with nothing to show for it. How could he make any choices at all? How was he judged? He's sending us down as a test to think, to grow, to learn. Well, what did he ever learn? How was he really human? And you don't see that? I see a peasant being bludgeoned to death. No, a man in love, a man who cared for his family, powerless and weak perhaps, but look at the choices he made nonetheless. I see an animal slaughtered. And I don't think it's fair to me to have to live up to some higher standard than that. Is that all you can see? How unfair things are to you? Fair's fair. And he's not being fair. And I'm telling everyone, and some people already believe me. So it's true what Yahweh told me. Yahweh? What did he say about me? He said there was a role in the plan for you, an important role, a necessary role, but a terrible one. And I think we can stop there. Um, Aaron. Wow, this is fantastic. It's really good. That kind of got me a little bit. Yeah. I was like feeling it. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, go ahead. Um, 
what if your father in heaven was a slave who was murdered when, they, when he was 20 just because he was in the wrong place at the wrong time? This is one of the things that's completely... Whenever I've thought about this stuff yes. before, it is one of the things that's discouraged to, to think about, okay? <laughs> I don't know anyone who encourages it. I, yeah, sure. To, I mean, this is deliberately provocative. Sure. Right? To, yeah. to take our, our loving Heavenly Father and to put him in this kind of position, right? Yeah. It feels sacrilegious. It feels blasphemous. Which is why the Jews didn't like Jesus, may I point out. Um, okay, well, sure. Yeah, no, that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> right? But um, it's a consequence of some of this logic. Right. right. It is. <clears throat> if any of us can become gods, then our god could have been anybody. And when we say, as man is, God once was, we have to accept the good with the bad. Yeah. Right? Um, which is so interesting when you compare that to Christ, who was absolutely perfect. And this, I think, is one of the good arguments against this theory. Right? Okay. Is that um, you have God the Father and the Son. Right? Mm -hmm. And the Christ was absolutely perfect on earth. Right? Doesn't that mean, I mean, that's amazing, right? If God wasn't. <laughs> yeah. Um, there, in Slaughterhouse-Five by Kurt Vonnegut, uh, the novelist, Kilgore Trout, who, who's a character in that novel, he writes a book. And in that book, he says, um, some aliens show up to Earth and are like, hey, Earth, we love this New Testament theme, but we think you guys messed it up. And the aliens say, so the New Testament accidentally gives the message that you shouldn't lynch people who are connected to important people. The New Testament would be better if Jesus had been a nobody. You still get all the miracles and all the good lessons and the perfection, all that stuff, but he's nobody. He is just the son of a, of a um, carpenter, and there's nothing going for him except for he's a really good person. And when he gets crucified, then God shows up and says, um, what is wrong with you people? I'm adopting this kid and making him mine. And that would send the message that you don't mess with people. But because Jesus is the son of God, like, the only message is don't mess with the Son of God, hmm. um, which is a, a provocative um, argument. Yeah, I also think it's a bit misrepresentative. Right? Oh, I, yeah. I, I think I, Christ, sure. Christ was humble, right? He was born in a manger, right? But ultimately, he was the Son of God. Yeah, he was. And so then the question then with this eternal progression is, are we ultimately all that well connected because we are sons of God? Or is Jesus... Jesus in some way qualitatively different. Because I have heard people say that becoming a God only is only Jesus. The rest of us, like we get close, we don't get to become as the Father is. That's not mentioned in this article, but that's something I've heard from more than one person over the course of my growing up as a Latter-day Saint. Hmm. Are, are we, eternally speaking, um, looking towards time as an infinite expanse line ahead of us? Uh, is there equality between us and Jesus. Yeah, I think it's such an interesting question. I, that you know, Christ is so different yeah. than any of us. Yeah, today. Right? Um, <laughs> that it is it is so hard. I mean, that's why um he's so important. Um but I mean, we believe in progression, right? That yeah. we can that we believe um, in some kind of progression. That much is clear. That much is clear. And it's just uh, <laughs> it's like we've we've established that we believe in progression. Mm -hmm. Now we're just dithering over the limits of that progression. You know what bothers in me in both most? in both directions. Yeah, because there's there's issues all the way around. But the thing that bothers me most about quantitative progression is it just feels so like shallowly capitalistic to me. Mm. It feels like it it doesn't to me. I can see oh, why you would say that. Yeah. Oh, I would love to. Yeah. To go. You take over this conversation. Then. It's easy to look at quantitative progression as in a progression of dominion. Yes. Right. Of planets, stars, universes, galaxies, whatever Stop. it is. But that's, I think, the wrong way to look at it. All right. Let's hear it. The right way to look at it is a progression of family. Okay? Yes. Of I, I of, do think that's the right direction. And an increasing bonds of love passed on from generation to generation, bound in a web. It's like, I have, you know, my wife, I have my two kids, right? And it's all I, and I just, it's just the most important thing to me in the world, yeah. right? And that reveals a bit of my limitation, that that's the small, <laughs> I'm in a small family group, right? Yeah. But the, uh, but God loves, loves all of us, 
right? It has this huge connected family, and it's only getting bigger. Yeah. Right? And the joy, I mean, my the joys in my life mm-hmm. come from my family. How much more joy does God have? And it's just always becoming more, right? It's just always yeah. being more and more and more. And for the longest time, that was enough, like, for me. Like, I'm like, okay, I don't get it mm-hmm. in the sense that, I don't understand what it means to stop learning. Yeah. Right? <laughs> but I do understand family. Yeah. Um, now is a good time to talk about infinity if you want to. But we can go wherever you were going to go next. Oh, I think I said what I wanted to say about infinity. Um, so I agree. I think that is the right way to look at it is a growth of family outward. For, and For quantitative. Right, for quantitative. If you're going to look at quantitative, I think it has to be about family. Um, but it does suggests that maybe then there is a point where you don't need to learn more because you've learned as long as you've learned sufficiently about love in order to be able to grow through love every time there is more um then great although i just realized that this is sort of like a love an eternal love pyramid scheme <laughs> I want to go back to infinity. Okay, okay? let's go back to infinity. This is, you didn't gonna... say everything you wanted to say about infinity. I didn't. I didn't. <laughs> we put a pin in it. All right. Let's quote from the first article art article by Matthew Bowman. Other church members were more equivocal than the lawyerly McConkie. <laughs> Brigham Young University English professor and theologian Eugene England. Okay, so our old friend. Eugene our old friend. Was... Remember, yeah. our, our finale from last season was on universalism. This is going back to the same. Yeah. To the same arguments. Okay. Sought in 1980 to reconcile the positions of leaders like Young and Widstow, who believed in this God that can progress, or rather that, yeah, that God can progress, right? Um, with those of leaders like McConkie and, jo- and Fielding Smith, Joseph Fielding Smith. While McConkie was influenced by his legal training, England's literary interest in paradox led him to attempt to find a way in which both sides may be true. He suggested that perfection in one sphere is possible, but then so is progress in a higher sphere or realm. He thus concluded that it was possible to speak of God as both perfect and progressing, both expanding in knowledge and power, and possessed of maximal authority. This is what I like. Mm -hmm. And now it's time to check into a hotel. Okay? Okay. Have you ever heard of the hotel? I have no idea where you're going. This is Hilbert's paradox of the Grand Hotel. All right? So, imagine, if you will, a hotel with an infinite number of rooms. Okay. All right? And a new guest arrives. Checks in. The guy behind the bar says, behind the bar, behind the counter, Uh says, um... All of our rooms are full. We have an infinite number of guests in our infinite hotel. Oh, okay. And the and the guy says, "Oh no, what am I going to do?" Right? And so the 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 guy behind the counter says, "Make have no fear. All I'm going to do is I'm going to ask all the guests to move next door." <laughs> okay. And now there's a room opened up, room zero, or one if you prefer one indexed. Uh, I, I choose not to choose. <laughs> <laughs> so he moves in, and then that's fine. Okay, a couple more people have to show up, and they're able to fit them all. I mean, everybody yeah. has to move every time someone arrives, but okay. it works. All right. Because it's infinity. Okay. A busload of people arrive. Okay. <laughs> the bus is infinitely long. Oh, no. It has an infinite number of people in it. <laughs> oh, Aaron. <laughs> the bus, and all the people get off the bus. And they all want to check in in the, ho- in the hotel's rooms. Oh, what are we going to do now? Okay. Yeah. All we're going to do is we're going to map the people in rooms. Everybody go to the room that's twice the number of yours. Right? Okay. Or, no, sorry. Everybody go into the room that is, like, if you are um, go from one to two, go to two to four, then go to three to six, and go to five to eight. Oh, interesting. Five, okay. Right. Or four to eight. So each room number, you move to the doubled one. And then there's spaces. And that leaves exactly enough spaces. And now there's there's now a new infinity available. And all of the people from the first bus can now go into the odd-numbered rooms. Yeah. Thought experiments. Still still infinity. All right, come on. (laughs) All of these are the same sizes of infinity. As they might be giants say, um, 
infinity, infinity, who's going to beat infinity? So add it up, I just might win. Help me figure out where it ends and where it begins. Then I just might catch, and you might just see that I'm going to reach infinity. What song is that? It's called Infinity, oh. off of Here Come the One, Two, Threes. One okay. of their delightful albums for children. <laughs> it turns out that you can show through a different set of mappings mm-hmm. that it is possible for uh, to create an infinity that's actually bigger than the infinity that we just described. Okay. All right? I'm not going to try and walk you through it. There's plenty of YouTube videos that would. But I'm going to give you an analogy that I heard once that describes this. Imagine, if you would, an infinite line that represents the number line. Okay. Okay? And every point on that line is lit up. Okay? Okay. With the same amount of light. Yes. All of the integer numbers, 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, are lit up. Okay. All right? So we're going to go between the integers? And all of the irrational numbers... Oh, dear. ...are also lit up. Okay. Okay. If you took away all of the rational numbers, not just integers, but anything okay. like four like over one six half, or one yeah, half, anything rational. If okay. you took all of them away, yes, the light being emitted by that line would not diminish. That makes sense to me. Sure. And if you took away all of the rational ones, it would like vanish. If you took away the irrational ones, it would vanish. Yeah. Oh, all, if you took away all the irrational there ones, them. there are more rational numbers than there are inf- than rational ones even though they're both infinitely countable. Okay. So I'm not going to sure. try to prove this. No, no, no. But that's, proofs that's, exist. That's pretty That's pretty straightforward. I believe, I mean, it should be proved. Somebody should prove it if it's provable. So what but I'm trying to say sense. is I like what Eugene England said. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? Is that perfection in one sphere is possible, but, so is, but then so is progress in a higher realm. I like yeah. the idea of there being layers to progression that we can't even conceive. Yeah, and I don't want to speak ill of the dead, but this is what I don't like about um, McConkie's rhetoric. Mm-hmm. Is oh, I, because he snapped back. This he, is, he, yeah, of course he did. Um, <laughs> this was the, I mean, this was the one of the things that he, I think, that he responded to in his letter back. Uh, no, I'm going to say something different. So if you if you want to quote that, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to quote it. Um, but and we've talked about this before, but I think ultimately, even an apostle, even someone intensely intelligent like um i'm don't i'm not interested in ranking people but let's take james Talmadge as an example um first american with a phd i've read before i don't know if that's true but or maybe before latter-day saint with a phd he's the first somebody with a phd because it was a new degree and he was one of the first people to get one very intelligent guy um the only apostle who uh was commissioned by the church to write books of theology um interesting dude like like uh, Thomas, great guy. Uh, and something that I appreciate about him is that he maintained a sense of humility and a sense of not being, uh, not necessarily feeling like he knew everything. And I, I think Bruce R. McConkie was less skilled at that. I think, and I think he did it from a place of love. Like McConkie was afraid that if people didn't feel like they knew the answers to these questions, then they would go search and find bad answers and that would lead them down narrow roads. And he was kind of a binary. As, as far as Mormons go, he was kind of a heaven-hell kind of guy. So I, I think McConkie's motivation was noble, but I think it's ultimately erroneous and contrary to what I love about Latter-day Saint theology, which is that it is ongoing and growing and more than we can know, and, and we should be humble in the in the face of infinity. You can't understand it. We, we, we haven't covered, like, half what I'd like to talk about, <laughs> right? They're, they're, these are rich, rich articles. Um, I love, um, I should have said, I, I, I enjoyed what you just said. Oh, thanks. <laughs> I wasn't offended that you didn't. <laughs> um, for example, one of the, th- what, you know, talking about universalism, I loved uh, the conversation about sealing promises. Oh, yeah, I had that underlined. That was something I wanted to talk about, too. Well, let's talk about that really quick. At this point, I think we've covered our main goals for the for the show. Yeah. I'd like to pick out some of the things that we missed along the okay. way. Okay. So, the, the this is a topic that is always, that used to bother me when yeah. I was a kid, right? It was the idea that a righteous parent sealed to their children, right, would essentially bind them. Yeah. Right? Sort of drag them into they drag a higher kingdom or something into in the celestial kingdom. Whether right? their agency led them that direction or not. And there's quotes that essentially say this yes. in, the, in the article. 
So what do you have underlined about this? Um, so I actually, I knew exactly what you're talking about, but I was remembering an underline of a different thing about the temple. Um, but I, I've come around on this. Like, I think that when we think about time as something that is infinite and is eternal and is going to keep going, the idea that the ceiling bonds are powerful and don't go away... Which, by the way, the problem with that is that it feels like it takes away agency. Yes, but ultimately it doesn't have to, right? Because infinity is so long that people can continue choosing whatever they want. Yeah. But that opportunity is always there for people to come back together. Um, and I think that there's an inherent optimism here, which is that given infinite time, ultimately people will choose the best options. Um, and I find that kind of beautiful that we believe that ultimately pretty much everybody's going to like find the right thing. There's a, um, in the most recent issue of Eriantum, of which I'm the editor, uh, the long poetry issue, which, um, is probably not exciting people. It was really good though. It's really fun, fun issue. But, and the poem, uh, talking to Dante in the spirit world by Daniel Cooper, um, it, it follows, it's sort of a, a shorter version of Dante's like divine comedy, but this time, Daniel Cooper is being led through the afterlife by uh, Dante as his host. And they pass through uh, where there should be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth and all that stuff, but there's nobody there. There's like, there's nobody there. And um, I mean, there are people who are like, you know, giving themselves pain, and but everybody's free to leave whenever they want, right? As soon as they stop giving themselves pain, they can leave. But even more exciting and more interesting to me was he comes up with this idea that um, the group he doesn't see are is the host of heaven that was thrown out. Like, they've all progressed out of that state, and most of them have gone to earth and become babies, and the only one left still railing against them is the great Satan himself. Um, and... Uh, I love that this poem and, and talking about the plan by Samuelson and um, Heike's Void by, and I could, I could give more examples, but I love how even though the people in charge of our theology are hesitant to reach decisions, there's so much exploration. Um, I mean, that's what we're doing now. And it's what these essays and the BYU studies have done. And it's what these works of like creative writing have done. But there's so much room to explore something that we cannot understand, but we can triangulate from so many different directions and slowly slowly come to I mean triangulation works in on in like a two-dimensional space right we're talking about an infinite space it takes a lot of angles to figure out what the shape of things are so I love that uh, Latter-day Saints feel free to explore these ideas even if we're wrong at least we're like trying things on and seeing how they feel you know it's interesting about Absolutely. I was just thinking, it's interesting about in universalism, right? Because mm -hmm. we started this bit about the ceiling cords, the binding, right? Yeah. About how it feels like it takes away agency. You know, you could argue that universalism takes away agency as well. <laughs> yeah, you could. But, but the, the thing about the math is, once you add infinity to it, yeah. then um, it, it sort of diminishes that problem. Yeah. And, and that's why where I was trying to go, is that um, it, it doesn't, because time is so long, there's so much room and time to love people. Yeah. Um, that's what we're learning. That's how we're growing. Yeah. Which comes back to your argument that maybe the only quantitative difference is love, mm -hmm. once we've learned how to do that. I mean, I, I still like the qualitative. <laughs> <laughs> But we don't have to choose. Uh -huh. And if we're if we're Orson Pratt, we can just be like the girl in the gif who says, why not both? <laughs> Por que no los dos? Yeah. <laughs> That's what she actually says. <laughs> but I didn't learn that language on my mission. <laughs> uh, just one thing I would like to say about uh, Gibbons' essay before we leave that I would like to point out is that he reads the relevant scriptures quite closely and points out how if you take them very literally, they mean something a little bit different than how most of us interpret the scriptures related to eternal progression. And um, and given the context of what other people are saying at the time, that gives us another interpretation. Like These really aren't answered questions. And I love that, um, and I didn't know this, but I love that officially the church does not have a policy on either of these. Like, or policy is maybe not the right word, but we have not defined 
these doctrines. We've not nailed them down um, to one right answer. Although some people have spoken as if we have officially, we have not. And I think that's kind of beautiful. Um, yeah, that's all I'll say. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna mention the other stuff. Read the read the read the articles there. Read the articles. They're really thought provoking. Um, I did have one other little digression. Oh, sure. About eternal progression that I can't that I thought of as we were just talking. All right, your this, progression digression. Yeah, this may not make the final edit, but it's, <laughs> but it's fun. Just a note about Orpheus and Eurydice. Okay. Okay. So Orpheus and Eurydice are two Greek personas. Eurydice dies. She does. She was bit by a snake. Unless you watch Hades Town the musical, in which case it changes it. That's one of the one of the great things that it does. I didn't <laughs> rec- realize that, but. Uh, it was pointed out to me that they uh, they change it so that she has more agency in the story. So she dies. Oh, interesting. And Orpheus, who is trying to to create a song, who's one and a beautiful musician, tries to go go into the underworld to save her. Right. Gets down there, plays a song that's like incredibly nice. <laughs> <laughs> and Hades is moved and says, "Well, I'm not going to let you both go. Exactly. But if you walk out of here, Eurydice can follow you." Mm-hmm. But you can't look behind you, and he fails. And right at the end, right as he's trying to get there, he fails. Right? Yeah. And he learned. He looks back, and Eurydice is there. She was following him, but she he loses his nerve, and um, he and that's it. That's where the story ends. And if you listen to Hades Town the musical, which is again one of the best pieces of of music around, uh-huh. I love it so much. <laughs> the last one of the last songs is we know. <laughs> it's a sad song, but we sing it anyway. Right? Yeah. Okay. That's the story. Okay. That's the musical. I'm going to tell you about the video game. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. The video game, Hades, is about young Prince Zagreus. Okay. The son of Hades. And how he is rebelling against his father and trying to escape from the underworld. Mm-hmm. Along the way, he meets up with lots of people, right? And each time he fails to escape the underworld, um, he starts over and tries again. Okay. It's super fun to play. <laughs> I'm really good at it. <laughs> <laughs> Along the way, he meets Orpheus and Eurydice in there. And at this point, Orpheus is dead, right? Oh, okay. So because that's how... It so works. Eventually, what happens? Eventually, Orpheus gets, would die. He gets torn apart by a bunch of pan worshippers, or no, Dionysus is worshippers. Yeah, <laughs> um, way to go. But obviously, he'd go down to the underworld anyway. Yeah, but he's still separated from Eurydice Aww. down there, right? As you play Hades, yeah, you can. I mean, this is a bit of a spoiler for, it, but it's a little <laughs> part of the game. You can reunite them. Oh, that's nice. And it is so satisfying. Oh, yeah? When you finally do it. Because it's not fast, uh-huh. right? It's, it's like 10, 15, 20 hours into the game. Oh, my gosh. It's, it uh-huh. takes a lot of work. It's really hard, mm-hmm. right? But you can. And I have to say... It's worth doing. This, it's so satisfying uh-huh. that you get to solve that problem, that you get to resolve that story. And that's mm-hmm. what I like about progression. Yeah. Right? Is the concept of eternity... And the concept of, resol- of of resolution, I think that's really cool. And that was my little digression here at the end. That was great. We're a, a proud member of the Dialogue Podcasting Network. We are indeed. Which we forgot to mention last time. Oh no, we did. I yeah. hope they didn't kick us out of the family. <laughs> that would that would be the opposite of like progression. Yeah, <laughs> it would be regression. It would be. <laughs> and we love Dialogue so much. We're yeah. so happy to be a member of them. Do you have any Dialogue stuff to say? Uh. Do I? I think I have a review coming out in the next issue, so okay. watch for that. I mean, I wrote it nine months ago, so it's been, the book's been out now for like four months, and it's finally the review's finally coming out, so cool. look for that. It's a really good book. It's called Joseph Smith and uh, the Mormons by Noah Van Skyver, and um, it's, a really, it's, a, it's an excellent book. It's a, it's a comic book. It's a comic biography of Joseph Ooh. Smith, and it is really good. <laughs> you can find the show at Face and Hat. You can follow me at Aaron Brewster on Twitter. And I'm at Amazing. And uh, join our Discord. Join our Discord, please. We've had, we had a great bunch of discussions on Discord. Yes, they're sporadic, um, but when they happen, they're excellent and fascinating. Yeah, I really enjoyed um, following along. And um, It's not going to be a Discord that hits you with a million 
messages. Messages, but yeah. when they come, you'll be glad you're there. One of the reasons to join our Discord is you can talk about the articles that are coming up. And next time... Next time we'll be talking about the Keen Fall of Discourse, Pinnacle or Peripheral by James E. Faulkner with Susanna Morrison and special guest star joining us, uh, William William Morris. So yeah, it's going to be fun to have a guest. Um, we've done the King Follett Discourse before. Do you we remember? Have. Yeah. So we're going to be looking for different ways to approach it. And um, I'm very excited about it. Yeah, I, I am thoroughly confident that uh, the article will give us things to talk about that we have not talked about before. And that's a good place to start is with new stuff. Okay, great. And we thank Daniel Foster Smith for our music. Our good friend, the music man. Thank you. That's it. Bye. Bye.